0: I mean, I write a blog post, and, and, and that is pretty scathing sometimes of the entire sector, donors, um, researchers, foundation staff. And every single time I, I, I put out a blog post like that, I start thinking, well, someone is going to defund my organization. I just know mm-hmm. it. Some, some donor is going to like withdraw their funding. It's been the opposite. People appreciate having this sort of candid Um, approach to things it's it's authentic right and that's sort of what people like is they like authenticity
1: what's happening y'all welcome to the opening episode of season two of group thinkers i am so excited for you to check out this episode to dive into season two uh you know group thinkers is the podcast from rkd group and, uh, you know, with each and every episode, our goal is to bring someone, uh, to elevate someone that is a, a disruptor, an innovator, a curator of something cool, different, unique in the nonprofit marketing space. And so this starts our journey into season two. Um, season two, you know, we've got a, a, a lot of great people Uh covering topics around leadership, covering topics around, uh, live stream fundraising. Uh, we've got folks like Angel Aloma on in an episode of season two on hell is executive director, uh, of a nonprofit organization. And he's, um, quite possibly the most wonderful person that's ever walked the face of the planet is you're going to hear in the Angel Aloma episode. So uh, season two, if you're listening to this, season two is live. You can binge every episode back to back to back to back to back. Uh, you can take popcorn breaks in between if you would like to, but um, certainly you can do that. You can, you can listen to every single episode. And that's something that makes us unique here at Group Thinkers. So, um, hey, real quick, before even intro... Uh, doing an intro of my guest on this first episode of Season 2. Just want to say thanks to the team at RKD for helping pull this together and especially uh, for the Holidays study. Um, if you're like me, you noticed what happened at the end of 2018 in overall giving, online giving, offline giving, and wondered what in the world is happening, what what's going on, what's causing this change. Uh, in December giving. So the team at RKD Group did a study and that study can be found at givingindecember.com. You're going to hear about that in each and every episode of Group Thinkers in the second season. So uh, do me a favor, do yourself a favor, go to givingindecember.com and go ahead and download the white paper. There's also plenty of content on the RKD Group blog about the uh, the study itself. So... Um, so with that let's let's dive into this episode. So this episode uh, in structuring season 2 we wanted to find people again that were innovators that were uh doing something different in the nonprofit marketing space and and elevate them or or uh, bring their voice to to light more. And certainly we've done that with our first episode here in Vule. Voo is uh, a part of the staff at Rainier Valley Corps. Uh, now, Rainier Valley Corps is an uh, organization that is based in the Pacific Northwest, and uh, they are focused on strengthening the power of communities of color in order to create a more equitable society. So there are uh, operation support programs, capacity building programs, advocacy initiatives, community impact fellowship programs that the VU and the team offer as a part of uh, Rainier Valley Corps. Uh, He is the executive director of that organization, but he also is the curator behind a a blog that is common amongst social media circles in the nonprofit marketing space, and that's Nonprofit AF. Uh, if, you, if you haven't heard of this blog, uh, go ahead and open up a browser or uh, make yourself a reminder to check out nonprofitaf.com. Uh, so this is a thought-provoking blog where Vu just gets into whatever's on his mind. And you'll hear as Vu talks about his story and his journey to his executive director role that he is uh, he's constantly thinking and challenging the norms of the nonprofit marketing space. Um, what I really love about the conversation that you're about to hear is that Vu and I don't uh, agree on some of the items, some of his perspectives. And, uh, and even though we don't, I love having the conversation and understanding where he's coming from on certain items, um, and, and appreciate so much his work to elevate diversity inclusion amongst the nonprofit space. So, uh, with that, let's get straight into the first interview in season two of Group Thinkers with Boulay. So, joining me on. This episode of Group Thinkers is the prolific. I, I get to use the word prolific. So uh the prolific voice behind nonprofit AF, uh, one of the more interesting, fun, enjoyable blogs that are out there for the nonprofit space. Vule Vu, how are you today?
0: I'm good, Justin. Thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah.
1: Uh listen, Vu, I, at the outset, um I, I've got a list of things I want to talk about with you. Uh both from the creation of Nonprofit AF, but also some of your interest and passions. But just at the outset, I want to know more about you and I'd love for you to share your journey, how you came into the nonprofit space and, and a little bit about uh, your organization.
0: Yeah, I uh, got my master's in social work. So I, uh, and... Uh, I couldn't find a job because uh, it's just been really—it was really challenging. And I actually thought about becoming a lawyer and started studying for the, the LSATs, and did not do so well on the law school admissions tests. So, <laughs> but I think I think this is probably where I'm meant to be. So I, I found this fellowship program that was trying to get more Vietnamese leaders of color into the work, and so I was sent to an organization called the Vietnamese Friendship Association and was there for the next nine years just helping it to run its programs. And uh, I became the ED for for seven years at that organization. And now after about seven years of being ED at that organization, I realized that a bunch of things we really need to address in the sector. One, for example, is the fact that many organizations led by communities of color are are really struggling. And also leaders of color are really struggling. They, They leave the sector often. And uh, we had to do something about that. So that's how Rainier Valley Corps was formed.
1: So were you, did you join Rainier Valley uh, at a formative state or have, you know, your rise and your, your, your role there, is that something that you've stepped into and helped grow along the way? Tell me a little bit more about that.
0: I helped to found Rainier Valley Corps based on the lessons I learned from my work at the VMI Sponsorship Association. And so obviously it's been around for five years and, uh, we decided we gotta do something different. A lot of things are not not working for our communities. So it started with a program where we are trying to bring more leaders of color into the nonprofit sector. So very much like AmeriCorps or the Peace Corps, right? Mm -hmm. Uh, We went and talked to these organizations that are led by serving people of color. And we said, well, what's going on? What, What are you struggling with? And they said, well, we need staffing. People keep sending us to workshops or they send us white papers on what we need to do. We can't do any of those things unless we actually have full time staff working on these things, so we said, okay, well, we're going to do that so we we opened a the fellowship program, so finding leaders of color and then giving them a, a full time job for for two years and sending them to work in these organizations led by communities of color. It's been really cool to to see that
1: what I love uh in hearing you describe that vu is. You've benefited from such a program, yes. I mean, so, like, to, so you were in this space to where uh, you're going down this road, uh, as a social worker, so had this mindset of always always wanting to give back, right? And and then you have this like little fork in the road you're like, ah, do I want to become an attorney? Um, or you know, I guess something else opened up and that's taken you into a place to where you've been able to give back the same way that you received. And that's such a cool thread into the nonprofit space of giving back, right? And so I love that that's just a part of your journey.
0: Yeah, now that you mentioned it, Justin, we don't really have a lot of thoughtful, intentional paths for for leaders, right? We have many in the for profit sector, we have lots of people going, talking to kids in middle school, becoming engineers or software programmers. No one goes to a middle school and says, hey, you could be a fundraiser or a program director, or you can help people experiencing homelessness, or you can become an executive director. So then many of us just kind of stumble into the sector. We, we really need to be way more thoughtful about how we bring leaders into the sector.
1: Yeah. Especially
0: leaders of color, because we really need them to be.
1: Well, and we want—we definitely we don't want to ignore those populations, right? We, we need more focused work on that. And, and you're right. I think that we're not as intentional. I actually had a conversation with um, a wonderful person, uh, Bill Weber, who leads an organization called the Development Guild. And we were talking a little bit about uh, the leadership opportunities that exist in the nonprofit space. And so it's funny because you have – you have hole and you have peg and and there's a lot of us that are sitting there thinking, well, why can't we just put them like you know just get them together? And, and you're right, we need more more thoughtfulness uh, and and dedicated focus work around that. So uh, now you came onto my radar because of of your blog, um, and so I want to hear about how it started. I mean, what where did you come up with? The, um, the time or the energy? Um, why, did, you know, why did you start uh, musing? And, and just give me a little bit of, of the, the content strategy behind the scenes of how you approach uh, nonprofit AF.
0: Yeah, this might sound surprising, but I was always this class clown in, <laughs> in high school and part of college where I, I would write humor columns and so on. And then when I got into the nonprofit sector, I was so busy working that I just neglected this part of myself, which is like writing and humor and finding humor in kind of bleak situations. And uh, it was actually a social venture partner, Seattle, who asked me, can you write from a grantee's perspective? And I said, okay, you're one of our funders. I can't really say no, can I? (laughs) So then I started writing for them, but then I thought, you know what? I'm gonna make this fun because we have plenty of writing out there that is very academic, important writing. At the same time, we need to really capture what is not just what's sad and difficult and serious about our sector, but but we have like brilliant people who are hilarious. And the work that we have, it is very joyful. It is hard, it is heartbreaking sometimes. But because of the amazing people we have in the sector, the work itself can be really fun. This is what keeps me going is because it's billion people in the sector who just hilarious, and I want to capture
1: a lot of that. The uh, there's this. I think there's this uh, truth in comedy, right? There is there is something that is pure about humor that can be revealing to us. It can make it appropriate to deal with certain perspectives on issues uh, that otherwise we may ignore. And I think that you you do a great job of doing that, of, of being provocative in, in your content, where, where does that content come from? I mean, do you, do you have a notebook? Do you sit and kind of keep track of, geez, this (laughs) is the life of being uh, a leader of a nonprofit and how ridiculous is this? Or is it something that you set aside time to dedicate to ideas? How do you, how do you create this stuff?
0: Yeah. Being a nonprofit uh, person, Time gives you lots. If we just, if once you start to, to pay attention, you just there's just so many things to talk about in the sector, right? And I have a running list on my phone of I don't know, 400 things that I want to talk about. I mean, half of it is pretty stupid, so like I'm not gonna write one of those things, but every and because I'm so busy, and it's most of it is actually pretty spontaneous, like I, I don't write them weeks in advance or anything, it's actually the writing process is. I uh I would I would watch my my shows procrastinating on Sunday. You know, Game of Thrones is coming out. That's just that's not gonna be good for the writing process at all. So I would, I would I would I would watch these these um these shows. And then about eight or nine PM I start freaking out because my blog is due in about four hours or whenever people wake up on the East Coast. <laughs> and so I start frantically writing for the next six hours and then publish immediately with very little editing. And then, so it publishes at about, you know, 1 or 2 a.m. And then maybe at 7 a.m. I wake up freaking out. And then I start scrambling, trying to edit after it's been published.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Classic procrastinator. I can appreciate that, uh, certainly. But you know, what's what's great to me is that your writing process that you describe sounds a lot like a a, a, a close friend that is in the standup space. <laughs> 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 he's, he's, you know they you know many times you hear they keep a running list on their phone of topics and uh, ideas and concepts and uh, but the truth that I love about it is that it's observations and feelings that you're seeing and that you're using in a reflective way to put out there in a very humorous format. So there's one particular post thread. I think the first one that caught my eye was about the Nonprofit Hunger Games. And, uh, and again, provocative Nonprofit Hunger Games. Um, explain for our listeners what the heck that is, wh- why that came to mind for you, and, and what it means.
0: Yeah, the Hunger Games is just all of us constantly fighting with one another for resources all the time. We do this consciously and unconsciously, and we don't realize sometimes that, that we're doing it. But everything that we've been doing, we've been trained to really just focus on our own survival, our own organization, our own mission of survival. So look at our fundraising, right? Everything is about how much do we raise, how, how do we raise as much funding as possible for our own organization? We don't think about other organizations or the entire sector as a whole. So then we isolate ourselves, we silo ourselves so that, you know, we, we don't think about how our missions might be interrelated. We're in early learning organizations. We may not spend as much time talking to the youth development folks, right, or the arts or the environmental folks, because we were just thinking, you know, they're on their own, when really, that is not a, an effective way to address society's issues. And I think we really need to get out of that mindset and start thinking about, okay, how do we support one another? How do we really think about the entire sector as a whole, I am not a big fan of this missions uh, driven sort of approach. I really think we should be community driven. And we really move we need to move away from this sort of uh, focus on in terms of fundraising about how to get as much money for an organization into, okay, what, what would actually help to address these problems that, that we're trying to, to work on?
1: You know, isn't that interesting? Because it's the well, if, if people haven't read The Hunger Games or watched it, hopefully this doesn't spoil too much. But like the way to survive in part is through alliance, right? I mean, yeah. that's that's kind of the basic principle of if uh, if you're in a situation that's dire, a lot of times it's an alliance that helps you survive in those scenarios. So yeah.
0: there's a, but it's not it's it's right the alliance with survival, right? The games itself, is, is, is they are indicative of a uh, just you know, just a system that is not working for a lot of people. Why do the games even exist? And we really need to think about why do nonprofits exist? It's because society is unjust. If we were in a just ideal world, many of us would not be around. We would not have food banks or homeless shelters. Right? We may have some really important um, nonprofits, such as I don't know cultural institutions, um, arts organizations, etc. Things that are more focused on the arts and cultures and things that are joyful and so we really have to think about not just like how do we play the games and survive better by working together but like how do we actually end the games so that they're just not necessary at all
1: i've heard some brilliant nonprofit leaders say before that you know the the ultimate goal is to put themselves out of business right you want you to solve this the critical issue but when the rubber meets the road there's there's For now, we're still a sector that's based on solving problems using um, maybe traditional business methodology of supply and demand and marketing to help fund something. And then you have this competition that begins to exist between nonprofits, right?
0: Yeah, absolutely. But I think this is a challenge that we have is that we are using business principles or for-profit business principles to address issues caused by for-profits, basically, and capitalism, right? I mean, we were dealing with a bunch of failures in in government and in the market system. And so I don't know how we're using these, these sort of philosophies and practices when they're the ones in many ways causing the issues we're trying to address.
1: This episode of Group Thinkers is brought to you by Holidays, the myth and reality behind giving in December, 2018. Did you know that one in five donors reported giving less to nonprofits last December? I know that for organizations that we work with, things were great through November, even maybe the first week of December. And then compared to what we had traditionally seen in the last three weeks of December, things started to dry up. I'm sure I wasn't the only one who noticed a sudden drop in donations compared to what we are used to with December. So some questions started to pop up into the nonprofit marketing ether. Was it the tax laws? Was it the economy? Was it the government shutdown? Well, we decided to find answers from the donor's perspective. So RKD Group partnered with McQueen, Mackin, and Associates to conduct a unique study speaking directly to donors to find out why giving dropped so drastically last December. You can download the full white paper at givingindecember.com. Find out exactly what donors had to say about their change in giving behavior and use that to build your strategies going into year-end 2019. So head over to givingindecember.com, download the white paper, and now back to Group Thinkers. The uh, I think that uh, you know one of the other aspects of the the nonprofit Hunger Games that uh, as a content series that you've put out there that's interesting to me is the conversation that it started, and and so this is something that's frequent with uh, with many of your posts, which is indicative of a great blog. By the way, is you know the interaction that you get back and forth, be it through you know your Twitter feed or or through comments on the posts themselves. What sort of feedback have you seen around uh, you raising the profile of this issue of the Nonprofit Hunger Games? What do people, are people uncomfortable with the idea? Do people wrestle with it? Do people full on uh, disagree with you and and kind of blow up your comment section? How how have you seen folks respond to it? And and what's your take on that?
0: I think most people agree with it in theory until they actually get affected by it. Right. For example, this uh, this week I, I published like 20 ways we can help to end the Nonprofit Hunger Games, right? And it includes things like, well, let's, why don't we highlight the work of another organization? Why don't we always talk about ourselves? Maybe in our newsletter we say, hey, thanks to our partner organization, you know, they're really great. Or uh, in the next sort of one day giving thing, why don't we say, hey, thanks for giving to us, but our work is not possible without these other partner organizations. So can you give to them also? Or in it, or you know, instead of giving it to us this year, right? So most times, we're like, oh wow, I've never even thought about that. I've never thought about just highlighting the work of another organization before because we don't think like that. We're not trained to do this, right? So then again, I get, I think this is one. One guy was like, I love this list except number seven.
1: <laughs> well, number <laughs> seven. Was probably the you know of the twenty that was probably the worst one, right? I mean,
0: right. number no, seven so was like maybe sometimes do not apply for a grant that you <laughs> apply for, right? Because maybe maybe your mission is important, sure, but perhaps at this point there's another organization that could use this money more because their mission might be more urgent, and you instead of applying maybe you don't apply and maybe you help that or other organization get the funding. Right, and he's and so he's like, yeah, I love everything except when I'm forced to give something up right? <laughs> uh, It affects my organization's survival. Right, so this is kind of what it is. The same with fundraising. I, I think our fundraising way we do fundraising is very indicative of the, the Hunger Games. It perpetuates Hunger Games, and and again, it is always fundraising is all about how do we get as as much money for our own organization as possible. How do we get everything is about it. That's the ultimate goal, right? Donor retention. Donor acquisition, all the terminologies we use, everything is to the ultimate goal of getting as much money for our own organization as possible. And so I've been trying to move the sector towards this community-centric fundraising where, again, it is about the entire ecosystem. It is also, and, and, and then a lot of fundraisers are, have been very, a lot of fundraisers, they love this sort of new philosophy. But then there's quite a few who are just like, I don't understand this at all. And it's not our, and because one of the principles, the, the main, the first principle of community-centric fundraising is we have to ground the work in racial equity and social justice. That means having difficult conversations with our donors about how they acquired their wealth. You know, maybe they need to stop being, uh, whatever, being being um, given a cookie for giving money to our own organization. and Instead, they should just pay more taxes. Right? Instead of tax sheltering, than us writing handwritten thank you notes because they donate to our organization, we get them to think about these systemic issues. And then, so a lot of are like, I mean, a lot of donors, not donors, but uh, fundraisers, they look at this and they go, "Oh, we love what you said about you know ending the Hunger Games." But I'm like, "Okay, are you going to talk to your donors about you know taxes?" They're like, "Well, that's not our role. Not, that's not like why would we do that? That might prevent them from donating to us." Right. So this is something that I think we really have to have a a grasp on for our sector.
1: I'm truly fascinated by it. I mean, I'm fascinated uh, that even in the short time that we're having this conversation, there's there's this this root of who you are that uh, comes out in your blog. It comes out in the work that your organization does. And it comes out in the way that you came to that organization. It all bubbles up together uh, to create the essence of VU, right? I mean, this is, you know, something that, um, speaks to your passions. And I know that, you know, when you and I were chatting, uh, earlier and, and even in other conversations, um, diversity inclusion in nonprofits, that this is a major passion point for you. So, you know, I, I'm not sure among the 1.6 million nonprofits in the U.S. that we have now that everyone has an idea about the necessity or the need or the state of diversity inclusion and what that looks like from accessibility, what that looks like from funding. Um, give me some insight. Help uh, open the eyes of, of our listeners to diversity inclusion and the needs there. Yeah.
0: Yeah. We definitely need stronger data on this, but from the last time I checked, only eighteen percent of the sector professionals are people of color. About ten percent of executive directors of nonprofits are people of color. Only about five percent of foundation leaders are people of color. And this is a huge issue when so many of the people that we serve are people of color. There's also the element of, of gender. We have so many women in the sector, and yet most of the high uh, sort of highly paid, top level uh, positions in the sector are, they tend to be men, you know, and then people with disabilities have challenged getting, uh, they're totally discriminated against in in terms of employment. That's another thing that we really have to address. So while our sector is working on all these different issues, we have to also think about who's actually getting to do this work and taking leadership position on many of these issues that that we're, we're trying to solve.
1: So this is, this is a through line, I think in in many of your posts and uh, across your Twitter feed and obviously something that you're passionate about in helping raise the profile of the conversation, right? Um, What have you seen in terms of that needle starting to move? I mean, this is, and it's not just in the nonprofit sector where this conversation is happening, right? This is something that's happening in many sectors and aspects of society uh, in, in this day and age. What have you seen, if anything, of that needle starting to move?
0: Well, I do think that we're having more conversations about it and people are talking about diversity, equity and inclusion. Um, I'm seeing it moving away from like a, a track at a conference to the overall theme of a conference, right? which I think is really good. Um, so definitely more conversations happening, more writings uh, are being produced around these issues. The challenge that I'm seeing is that, okay, those are, their words. They're actually like not action, right? We still have, you know, while we, while we have funders talking more about equity, diversity, and inclusion, the reality is that for the last 20 years, 90% of funding still goes to white led organizations in the sector. And less than, than, than 10% is going to, to organizations that are led by, by black folks, uh, indigenous folks, people of color, people with disabilities. And these are these are this this is something that we really need to to focus on because we can't just keep talking about these things that we're not moving things. Um, but there are things that I've, I've been seeing that that is hopeful. Uh, for example, I've been preaching a lot about just like simple things like disclosing salary ranges on your job postings because that punishes women and people of color when you don't. And I think for the last few years that has there has been a definite uptick in people disclosing salary ranges. I I think I see more salary ranges disclosed than than not. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing that I keep saying is like we need to stop requiring formal education for every single position, even when it's not specialized. I always joke that like as an ED, you don't really need a BA to be an executive director of a nonprofit. You just need a high threshold for paying. And you really so you why do we require this for yeah. what do, you, do? You, you really don't need it
1: yeah, I think the uh, you know the nonprofit technology networker inten does uh, does an incredible job of also raising the profile of this, both in uh, programming that they have around uh, equity and inclusion with a digital spin on it because that's the area in which they work. Um, but certainly when they have gatherings like at the NTC, uh, there's a tremendous amount of proactivity around uh, diversity inclusion that, that helps raise the, uh, the awareness and, and put things into action with some of the programmatic elements. So I, I, I definitely applaud the work that they do in that space. And, and I'm sure there are many others Uh, that are also acting on it, like you said, and kind of hearing the conversation that you uh, do such a good job of bubbling up. Um, Let's talk about the marketing side. So, you know, as an ED, uh, this is something, you know, you, you have this, uh, you have this organization that you're mindful of from all aspects. Um, Outside of the diversity inclusion or equity piece, what do you see as the largest or the biggest hurdles or struggles for nonprofit marketing
0: right now? Well, no one is funding it. This is, this, it's considered overhead, right? And we have this disdain of overhead still. And this is something that is a, a, a theme for many of us in the, in the sector is like we need to get away from this, this sort of patriarchal, so, because that's what overhead is. It's just we don't trust you to know what's best for your own organization. We also hate paying for people, right? All this work should just be done by elves and unicorns,
1: <laughs> um, but not
0: actual human beings who study this work or whatever. And marketing is is that it's it's marketing along with fundraising, along with administration, data research. A lot of this is just non-funded, and. And I, I think this is, it's, it's a challenge. We we need to do a way better job talking about the work that we do and funding the people who are out there doing this, who are doing this work, including marketing and fundraising. Sometimes because of um, stretches in the budgets, we we tend to combine sort of communications and development into sort of one position. This happens a lot in the sector. When oftentimes those are two kind of, they're, they're complementary, but they're separate things that require you know, a team of people doing these things, but we just kind of squish everyone together. And this, I don't, I guess this is pervasive across the sector. You can be like the chief finance person and the HR person and the janitor, right? Right. Like this is, this right. Is like,
1: wearing all, yeah, wearing every conceivable hat and having uh, an exceptionally long title in your email signature and so on and so forth. So, <laughs> but here's, so here's the thing: is that you know the the overhead conversation it it comes up in written content. It comes up in video content, you know, there are more TED Talks around this, you know, whenever you have the nonprofit leader stand up and give a TED Talk. Many times it comes back to the perception of overhead in the nonprofit space, right? And even going back to Dan Pallotta's uh, infamous one. Uh, yeah. And these have become rallying points within the sector. How do we get it outside of something that we talk about in and of ourselves? How do we take this and make it into something of action that changes perspective into the commercial space or into the consumer space or into the, the donor space? What, what's the tipping point there? And I know I'm asking you to solve a really big problem, but, you, but you're the person I get to talk to today. So that's why I get to ask
0: you that question. <laughs> well, I, I do think that our sector tends to attract some really nice, modest, humble people. And because we tend to listen more and not be as pushy, um, we are not as assertive when it comes to challenging society's unrealistic expectations, and so we don't. I was talking to an ED, I think a couple of years ago, who said, well, every year, uh, our local newspaper publishes a list of the 10 nonprofits with the highest overhead rate, and we're just terrified that, that we're just gonna be on that list. And I'm thinking, why, why, do, you, why do you give this list so much power? Why don't you get a bunch of EDs together and write a counter op-ed saying that this list is crap and is actually preventing us from doing our work and is ignorant and ridiculous, right? But instead of doing that, we just like work within the system because we have been trained to do that because of the scarcity sort of mindset because it becomes a cycle where, you know, we're not given enough resources and then we're just like protective of the resources that we have, even though they are limited and highly restricted. Instead of going, hey, we actually need to stop playing this this ridiculous game and this funding Sudoku or whatever that we're trying to do. Well, there, there and so start there's challenging. This,
1: there's this fear theory, right? And and I think that what you're speaking to is a tendency to retreat into our our shell, our tortoise shell, whenever those issues are are coming up. And so. In retreating, we're not facing any of these things head-on or being uh, assertive and going out. You know, another aspect on that is um, is the just remembering the nobility of the work that we do. In that fundraising is a noble work, right? And and as you even indicated earlier, we're trying to solve really complex societal problems with the work that we do as nonprofit marketers, and it's a good thing if we do solve them. So how can we, how can we afford not to be assertive in, in pushing that conversation?
0: We definitely need to do it more often. I I think this is, this is sort of the, 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 the key to unlocking our, our sector's potential, right? Is we've got to stop being so paralyzed by fear (laughs) and risk and failure in the sector. And this means, yes, challenging donors when they're wrong, you know, going to foundations foundation saying, actually, yeah, it's ridiculous to expect a quarterly report on a $2,000 grant, okay? You're not helping anything. So the more that we do this thing, it helps the entire sector and we can all be way more effective together. This is what I mean by like the Hunger Games, right? We, we start thinking about this sort of, I don't know, I guess it's like the tragedies of the, of the commons. We know it's good that we all do this together. but. If I'm going to be personally affected, then maybe I won't, I won't do this and I am going to skip out on, on doing something. And I think we're going to move towards, okay, what is good for, for the entire sector? And that means, yes, pushing back, sometimes losing a donor, sometimes losing a funder. And But if, I think if we all do that more often, um, it'll be more and more effective. I mean, I, I understand the power dynamics that we have in the sector, right? We don't want to lose funding because there are people depending on our services um, but at the same time, I, I think that this it's, we've gone too far into this sort of being paralyzed by fear. I mean, I write a blog post, and, and, and that is pretty scathing sometimes of the entire sector, donors, um, researchers, foundation staff. And every single time I, I, I put out a blog post like that, I start thinking, well, someone is going to defund my organization. I just know if some some donor is going to like withdraw their funding. It's been the opposite. People appreciate having this sort of candid um, approach to things. It's it's authentic, right? And that's sort of what people like is they like authenticity. Um, sometimes that's taken a little bit too far when you're just like a total a hole. That's not authenticity. It's just being an a hole. <laughs> right.
1: Right. But if you
0: can actually. Be honest and transparent and focus on what you think would actually work and you're not personally attacking people, then usually people are pretty responsive to it. Even if they don't agree, they can be like, okay, I don't agree with you, but I appreciate that you put it out there. Right. We need to do that.
1: Man, what's, uh, it's, it's such such good stuff and, and I know that uh, I could sit and we could have this conversation uh, all day, but we we want to get to editing this so we can get it out so we can help advance you know motivating people to do so. What's coming next for uh, for the blog? Is there any anything coming down the pike? Anything that you're super excited about, or is it contingent upon what you get from the premiere of the new season of Game of Thrones when you watch it this week?
0: <laughs> I'm actually going to put out a warning, which is for the next six weeks, the quality of the blogs are going to go downhill. Okay, but, because then I, I get affected by which characters die. And some of my most bitter, angriest blog posts is like, you know, after my favorite characters sure. die. And so, and no, people think that I am way more organized than I actually am. I, I'm not. There's, we have no idea what's going to come down. Sometimes I'll start on a blog post and then five hours in, I'm like, this is crap. I don't want to publish this. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to write about something else, you know, and it will have nothing to do with what I had planned to write. So I guess the answer is I have no idea I don't know much
1: <laughs> as you do about what's coming down the pipeline. Nice, nice man. Vu, I, I appreciate that because, it, it, again, it, it just speaks to your authenticity and the way that you approach this and the way that you approach uh, the work that, that Rainer Valley does. And, uh, and so, you know, I, I'm, I'm certainly thankful of the, the chance to, to chat for a little bit. Hey, last thing, how can folks connect with you? Where can they find you online? If they're not subscribed to the blog, uh, where should they go? All that good stuff.
0: Yeah, I am on Twitter at uh, nonprofitaf, and there's also facebook.com/nonprofitaf, and I kind of abandoned Instagram. I'm just not good with. Like, I can't juggle all these social media things, right? RainierValleyCore.org is also a great source. I'm sure you will probably misspell it, but just put Rainier Valley Core somewhere, and it'll lead us back to our to our sure. website. Yeah.
1: Awesome. Vu, thanks, man. I I appreciate the time today and uh, look forward to catching up some more down the road. Thank you, Justin. Okay. So there's the, uh, there's the interview with Vu and, uh, man, he's got some hot takes, right? Uh, he, he certainly has some, some hot takes, but you know, what, what I find interesting about, um, amongst the threads that he mentions, there's this idea of community centric work by nonprofits. And uh, one of the big takeaways that our team saw with our holidays study about giving in December was the rise of competition helping to fracture the marketplace in people's giving in response. And it's not about. Uh, you know one person receiving too many requests it's about the volume of requests overall from the volume of different organizations that people are getting uh, requests for support from and that includes in their own personal life you know GoFundMes that are uh, hitting their inbox and hitting their social feeds Facebook fundraisers that now we're in the state to where um, Appeals are more than just a nonprofit marketing term, and uh, those that give to us are being appealed to by so many different organizations and groups and friends in their own life. And all this competition is bubbling up to make it more complicated for each of us as marketers, and, and Vu's hot take around the nonprofit Hunger Games of, hey, are there ways that we could work together? Are the ways that uh, that organizations that have like minded initiatives could better partner together it 's a, a step down the road in uh, community building and it 's a, a, a fascinating thought thread so um I hope you enjoyed this episode. I hope you enjoyed the chat with Vu. Go ahead and throw him a follow on all of the social feeds associated with Nonprofit AF. But also, uh, while you have your Twitter feed open or Instagram open, uh, I-, I hope you throw us a follow too. We're at RKD Group on both uh, Twitter and you can find us on Facebook, but also Group Thinkers on Twitter and on Instagram. And so, uh, throw us a follow. We want to continue the conversation there. So any thoughts that you have on this episode or any of the other season two episodes of group thinkers, we want to be able to continue the chat there. Uh, thanks for hanging out with us and enjoy the second season. We've had a blast putting together. And so, uh, you know, with this, now that we're closing out this first episode, you can just Immediately go straight into whichever of the episodes you choose next. So, hey, maybe it's uh, the one with David Lappin or Bill Weber. Maybe it's uh, Ali Sweetman from Twitch if you want to learn more about live stream fundraising, uh, or uh, Una Osale from the Lilly School of Philanthropy at Indiana University. There's so many cool uh, curators of nonprofit marketing, thought leadership that we have as a part of the second season. And so, I can't wait for you to dive in and to give us your feedback. Uh, And until then, this is Justin. Thank you for uh, checking out this episode and we'll see you down the road. Group Thinkers is a production of RKD Group. For more information, visit rkdgroup.com slash podcast. Special thanks goes out to the production team, including Ryan Mellinger, as well as our content marketing team, Suzanne, Holly, and Carly for their work on this and every episode of group thinkers.